Welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. We have a bit of a vampire theme going on right now. Um, last episode we covered Interview with the Vampire and Lindsay, what are we doing today? We watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The 1992 Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, not the entire TV series. (laughs) Well, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Some people aren't familiar with the movie. So, why are we doing this? Well, let me tell you. The last time we recorded, I was kicking off the crowdfunding campaign for my vampire Christmas movie, Red Snow. And, oh boy, did, did people answer the call because... We, um, as of this recording, we've got 10 days left in the campaign, and we have raised 65% of our goal. And I know several of the listeners of this podcast are a big part of that, so thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Right now, we have just crossed 13,000 of our 20,000 goal. Um, If we get to 80%, we get to keep everything that we've raised, but... I think it is very, very important that we hit 100% just so I can feed and pay everyone appropriately on this movie. Um, I think you can get there. I think we can get there, too. I think 10 days is plenty of time. There's always kind of a bit of a surge at the end, and I know uh, some people have been holding out for... Oh, there's our bird. She wants you to contribute also if you haven't yet. (laughs) But yeah, I'm just... um, so, so grateful to everyone that's that's come out and supported the film. Um, I'm not going to blab about it a lot because I talked about it a lot in the last episode. But if you like vampire movies like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Interview with a Vampire, you can go over to RedSnowMovie.com and really any size donation will make a big difference. And, and even $10 donations. Even $10. I mean, if enough people all just gave $10, this campaign would be over right now. So it's going to be it's gonna be a pretty exciting 10 days. I'm in the process of uh, emailing pretty much everyone I know, everyone who I've ever known from high school or college or... Randomly accosting people at the BART station. Accosting people on the street and saying, Hey, you want to see a vampire Christmas movie? Um, and they say I'm trying to go to work. Yeah. So we're in the we're in the home stretch here. I think we can pull it off. But um, again, just thank you to everyone who has supported, and thank you in advance to all the people who are planning on supporting. And honestly, even if you can't manage a donation, just sharing it to your own network is super helpful, just to get more visibility. Because there's other horror fans or Christmas movie fans out there who. Might want to be involved. Yes, definitely. People have uh, sort of come out of the woodwork on this one that were referred by other people. You know, we just had Austin Scott, who was in prep school and is now playing Hamilton on Broadway. Very proud of him. He gave a donation and shared his support of the movie to his network. And that sort of spawned um, a little... A few more donations. A few more donations. So that Mm -hmm. was very exciting. Um, so yeah, even just, just sharing it, uh, will be helpful, but that's enough of that. Let's talk Buffy. Now, why did you pick this movie, Lindsay? You told me we had to do a vampire movie. (laughs) (laughs) No, I picked this movie because it's one that I grew up with. We watched a lot when I was a kid and I was a huge fan of the Buffy TV show. 
Um, and the movie is very different. And it's it, it was nice because I saw it when I was young enough that I was able to love both and not really uh, favor one over the other necessarily. Cause Which just, did you watch first? Probably the movie. Yeah, I mean, same. I can't remember exactly, but I, I would think the movie... But I did watch the the TV show starting from episode one on TV. On the WB. I remember those days. On the WB back before when there was a UPN and a WB before Mm -hmm. they merged. That dancing frog with the top hat. Mm -hmm. I remember that well. Yeah. A lot of the movies I grew up with were ones that my mom really liked. I think that's where Willow came from, too. The Princess Bride, Buffy. When you said Willow, I was thinking of Willow from oh, Buffy. Oh, from Buffy, no. This, the series. <laughs> the, no, Willow no. the movie. The Val Kilmer vehicle. The Val Kilmer vehicle. <laughs> or better known as the Warwick Davis vehicle. Oh, he is the main character of that movie, yeah. isn't he? I mean, he's Willow. Yeah. My mom was clearly instrumental in a lot of the movies that I ended up watching and being passionate about when I was a kid. And this was one of them because she liked weird stuff. This is a very interesting cultural artifact because it's it's very early 90s. Yes. It's kind of smack dab between Heathers, which mm-hmm. is clearly a big influence, and Clueless. Because Which, Clueless was 94 or 95, right? Yeah, and you but, can really feel that sort of Clueless culture mm-hmm. in this, but this isn't as bright and it's not quite as snappy as Clueless. Yeah, yeah. And the, that sort of valley girl aesthetic was very hot at this time, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Notable, too, is that Joss Whedon wrote this screenplay mm-hmm. and he very much disowned this movie and when he went off to make the tv series it's always almost as if he felt like he was kind of um righting the wrongs of this movie in his mind i think it's one of those things where joss whedon worked a lot as a script doctor i feel like that's what he spent a lot of his early career doing you'd think that would give him a little bit more humility i think he's really precious with his work and I, I kind of get that he had a different vision for this movie. He wanted something that was a little bit darker, maybe not quite so uh, fluffy. And it's not, this. I mean, we'll get to it, but I have some criticisms of this movie. But I don't know. I think, I think Joss Whedon has struggled a lot in his career with not having a super clear vision of what he wants to do, not actually being able to do that, and then being bitter about it. <laughs> Yeah, I I have a bone to pick with Joss Whedon, too. I mean, obviously, like, he's written a lot of things that I love. Most of all, Buffy, the series. But he does have this tendency to be like, oh, that's only bad because it was taken away from me. Like, I think the the chief offender here is he wrote the screenplay to Alien Resurrection, the fourth Alien movie. Mm -hmm. And he, which is not a movie that's well regarded, And he points to that and says, oh, they didn't really change my screenplay, but they didn't get the humor. Like it was like all those lines are supposed to be delivered in a humorous way. And it's like Alien is not a series that's known for its levity. Like it's a very bleak and uh, brooding sort of series. I don't know. I thought it was really funny when all those monsters were just tearing out of people's bodies. It's almost like this thing where he just cannot admit any wrongdoing at all and he was also instrumental i don't want to really get off on a tangent about it but (laughs) he was also instrumental in the big uh justice league kerfuffle although i sort of feel like that movie would have been doomed no matter who is in charge of it i'm that's all just to say that we're not 
you know, like diehard Joss Whedon yeah. fans. But I don't want to trash him either because I am a fan of a lot of his work. Yeah. I think that you can be a fan of his writing and also acknowledge that uh, he's flawed and he's often unwilling to, you know, take the blame when projects don't like quite pan out. It is one of those things where this is sort of a prequel to the TV series in a way, but he doesn't want it seen that way. Because, I mean, and there are some different inconsistencies, right? Like, you can't read it as a direct going from film to TV series because she's a senior in the movie, but she's a sophomore in the TV show, that kind of stuff. But they, they refer to things. You can see that he had his original script or film script, or maybe he he had kind of reworked some of that in his head, but he had some version of the events of this film do predate the TV series and kind of act as a as a prequel to that. And he eventually had it come out as a comic book. Oh, which really? I, yeah, which I have not read. I, I have heard him say that he considers his original screenplay to Buffy to be the prequel to his show, which is yeah. a very Joss Whedon thing to say. <laughs> but... I mean, just because, like, the original ending of this is her setting the gym on fire to kill all of the vampires, that doesn't happen, probably for budgetary reasons, but also because it's pretty dark. And I think that that's, like, a lot of what the meddling was, was they, according to Joss Whedon, so take it with a grain of salt, but that they made his, you know, iconically witty dialogue, they, like, dumbed it down in his mind because it was probably, like, they probably thought it was too dry. Yeah. So instead it's a lot of, like, you know, valley girl type stuff or a lot of, like, you know, kind of lines lifted from Heather's, like, what's your damage and that sort of thing. He does say a lot of that stuff. The thing that I would want to know if he originated or not is Yabos because... (laughs) Because on on this watch, we both realize that one of the characters says that she has, what was it, gravity-defying yabos? Her yabos uh, defy gravity, something like that. Yeah, David Arquette's character says that about Buffy. Essentially saying that she has perky boobs. But a lot of people think that Hocus Pocus originated yabos, and that came out the year after this. So Mm. clearly, yabos was somewhere around in the culture of this period. Are you a hashtag Yabos truther? <laughs> Possibly. Are you pointing to Joss Whedon as the... Well, it's funny because I, o- I had only thought of that as a Hocus Pocus thing Everyone also. Everyone thinks of that as exclusively a Hocus Pocus thing. If like, you that's look where up, it Yeah, if from. you look up that word on, on Google or whatever, it will say coined by Hocus Pocus, but no, it's... it's- in this, this predates, movie. yeah. This also means a lot of people aren't watching this movie to realize that it has yabos in it. Well, in those people's defense, I've watched this movie many times. I grew up with this movie like you did, and I'd never noticed that line until this watch. Yeah, that's true. It's because it's when they're, it's when Luke Perry and David Arquette, excuse me, Pike and Benny are drunk and uh, sort Dude, of stumbling names are around. Bad. The Everyone name... has weird names in this movie. Yeah, I'm sure Joss Whedon claims that they took the names away from him. <laughs> <laughs> and only Buffy was his creation. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny because it's almost like thrown off. This, uh-huh. this culture-defining uh, word that Hocus Pocus has gotten the credit for. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, one ad on the tape. Love Potion number nine. 
starring Sandra Bullock very early in her career. Yeah, and Tate Donovan. It's funny, I only know of this movie from this ad on this VHS Yeah, I've never seen it, but it looks really weird. It's about these two scientists who create a love potion, and when they talk to someone, that, that person becomes obsessively infatuated with them, and it's about them kind of going from nerds to this highly desired people that can you know, manipulate anyone every which way that they want. Tate Donovan, her Sandra Bullock's co-star in this, I only know him as Joshua in the Friends <laughs> series where he's the guy that Rachel becomes obsessed with when she's a stylist. It's funny. There is a rom-com with a supernatural bent that we have not seen and has not been on this podcast. I feel like that's the perfect merging of our interests. Like... Simply Irresistible, for example. <laughs> Simply Irresistible, you love so much, and it's such a, it's not a good movie. So we've got, we don't have Sarah Michelle Gellar. We've got Christy Swanson playing Buffy. Yeah. And what's the deal with Buffy? The deal with Buffy is that she's got kind of, you know, a privileged valley life. Like, things are pretty good. She's a cheerleader. She's dating one of the popular guys who's also in the uh, basketball uh, uh, who's also on the basketball team. She's just not really concerned with all that much. She doesn't really know what she wants to do with herself. She might want to be a buyer and buy things. (laughs) Buy, buyer, to buy. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also makes me think of friends because Rachel ends up becoming a buyer. I know buyers personally where I work. Uh, That is a legitimate job that you can do. But yeah, she's just kind of got this laissez-faire life and suddenly very creepy Donald Sutherland shows up and says, actually, you're the chosen one and you need to help defeat all the vampires. And it kind of turns her life upside down and she doesn't really know what to do with it, but she's kind of excited about it at the same time, even though she's in denial. I think another big difference between the TV show, this is all very lighthearted. Yes. Um, Almost to a fault. I mean, it is a horror comedy, but you were saying during the movie that you didn't find the vampires to be particularly threatening. Yeah, and it was one of those things is as we were watching it, I think this film is a lot more effective when you're younger. Because I remember as a kid, I found Rutger Hauer actually really scary. Mm. Um, I found his character to be super creepy. Uh And he was pretty effective as a villain, but as an adult, as I'm watching it, I just don't really find the vampires all that threatening. My main takeaway from when I was a kid was that Paul Rubens was hilarious as the (laughs) sidekick who loses his arm and, and has all the quips and ultimately has like the most prolonged death sequence in any film I've ever seen. And he, uh... And he improvised a lot yeah. of that, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. And it still works, but it's also very like, uh, come on, Pee Wee. Like, you're, you're laying it on a little bit thick. but It's a little bit slapstick. Because I I think that what this movie is, is missing, and no pun intended, is uh, stakes. It's got plenty of wooden stakes going into vampires' hearts, but th- I don't <laughs> have any dramatic stakes here. Yeah, and I think that's what I wanted... <laughs> My other major criticism of this movie is that the music isn't that good. Even the music doesn't have enough energy. Like, they have this whole montage of her doing her training, and it's just kind of blah because they picked the wrong music for it. 
I actually like the score, like the Carter Burwell's score pretty yeah. well. It's almost got this kind of like tribal sort of quality mm-hmm. to it. I, I like that element of it, but you're right in that the songs on the soundtrack, I've often harped on this. I feel like the late 80s, early 90s were a really bad time for music. Yeah. It's a lot of like easy listening type stuff. But there's much better, I mean, just a couple years later, there's much better music used in Clueless. Like, if this had come out a few years later, mm-hmm. I think it probably would have been punchier. Yeah, well, I also just feel like everyone involved with Clueless had a much clearer vision for what they were doing. Yeah. Like, Amy Heckerling had I mean, that's a vision. such a polished yeah. movie. Um, whereas this, it sounds like there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen and i'd never heard of this director before um i don't know it seems like with the soundtrack they're kind of just trying to sell the soundtrack with a like you know what's funny though is that they were doing they were picking pop music but they weren't even picking strong pop music except for uh Except for Toad the Wet Sprocket. Can't ever go wrong with Toad the Wet Sprocket. Isn't that the song that you hate, though? The 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 training montage song? I don't think so. Because there's a, there's a several great montages in this movie, as 90s movies are wont to do. There's your training montage. You've got your getting ready to go to the dance and fight vampires montage. And both times, I feel like we looked at each other and were like, this would work so much better if there was better music here. Like, if there's just, like, a better needle drop of a better song at this point. Yeah. It's not necessarily that any individual song was particularly bad. It just wasn't the right song for that moment. Yeah, totally what Sprocket is not what's playing during her action montage. That was a female artist. So let maybe we could maybe we could go with a quick uh, rundown of the cast here because this is a pretty star-studded cast. Yeah, this is a stacked um, cast, ac- kind of accidentally. Yeah, there's a lot of people who have bit roles that later became famous. Like we saw Ben Affleck in the basketball game. He plays a guy that's creeped out by one of the vampires. The, that basketball scene is a highlight of the movie for me. Um, but yeah, Ben Affleck even has a line. He's he gets creeped out by the vampire player and throws him the ball and says take it man so he might have even gotten like his sag card from that or something yeah seth green has a cameo for uh, just a few seconds you mostly see the back of him but there is a split second where you can you can see him from the front and then she like roundhouse kicks him in the face yeah, and, he's and that's a the end of seth green yeah, he uh, has the distinction of being the only actor to be in the series and the movie, right? I or think there's there, one other. Is there one other? Um, there's I feel one like... other that ends up doing a guest role on the TV series. Oh, okay. I think. Well, he's. It's amazing that he has the distinction of being both a vampire and a werewolf. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty amazing. That's pretty awesome because he's a werewolf on the show, as Oz, of course. And then, uh, yeah, Donald Sutherland is the Watcher character. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love Donald Sutherland, and um, I think because of this movie, I have an affection for him, which is sort of funny. Uh, like when he, when I found out he had been cast as the father of the Bennets in Pride and Prejudice, I was really excited about it. <laughs> He's good in that. Yeah, because of my, uh, you know, longtime affection for him, but. On rewatching this, he is really weird in this movie, and he's not. I think now being a grown up, I see things differently than I did when I first watched this. So he's just a little bit stilted. He's not quite 
It's hard not to compare him to Giles in the TV series who ends up being her watcher and uh, sort of mentor. And he kind of pales in comparison. Yeah, he shows up in this kind of ratty trench coat and hat. And he corners um, Buffy while she's alone in the gym and is basically like... And, and says, like, I, I feel like it's written to kind of seem like he's a dirty old man. Like, I gotta take you to the graveyard. He says these kind of, like, creepy things. I don't, I don't think you're supposed to read him as a dirty old man, necessarily. But I think you're supposed to be weirded out and kind of on her side a little bit, thinking, what is going on here? And then you realize, oh, wait, he's not this crazy person. She does need to listen to him, that kind of thing. But I feel like he is always kind of on that note. Like, he, mm. I mean, there, there, he has some great scenes like where he throws the knife at her head and she catches it. Yeah, in the scene where he sneaks into the girl's locker room <laughs> and she's like, hey, people take their clothes off here. You shouldn't be here. This is a naked place. Yeah, and then he throws a knife at her to prove that she's the chosen one. She's like, what if I didn't catch it? And he said, well, you caught it because you're the chosen one. And it's like, well... You could be just a stodgy old man, and you could have just killed a girl in a locker room. Yeah. And uh, you don't really learn much about his backstory. I guess he's been reincarnated over and over and over again. Well, and she has too. And she has as well. And and that's kind of how he's able to win her over, is he he knows that she's been having these dreams where she just continually gets killed by Lothos, Rutger Howard. Well, and she has a feeling that he's familiar, right? Because she's been seeing him, and she has some of that past memory. And this is something that's treated a little differently in the TV show where the watcher, the same watcher, isn't a part of Buffy's life and her past lives. He's new to this life, but she does have past lives, but not looking like or being herself. Like she's, there's a version of her from some distant, distant time in Africa and all this stuff where she's clearly not a blonde white woman. The mythology is a little murky on this one. Like in the show, it's very clear that she's the chosen one because she alone can beat all these vampires. Like she's like this wrecking crew, like one person wrecking crew. But in this film, it sort of seems like anyone can kill a vampire. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because I was going to say, well, the TV show has the advantage of having more time to develop that. But it really establishes that just in the first episode. And I think one of the, I guess, my biggest criticisms of this film version is that she's not that strong. And you don't quite understand why they say she's chosen, but you don't, it's not really clearly illustrated. Like she does some fighting, but she's not really able to fight much more effectively than Luke Perry's character is. The vampires are almost like kryptonite to her. Whenever she's around them, she gets bad menstrual cramps. And they specifically call it cramp, like menstrual cramps, which is just really a weird detail for them to have decided on for this. That was a really poor choice because she becomes weakened basically in their presence. She's like grabbing her side. And kind of sort of bending over in pain whenever a vampire is around her, which again makes her seem weaker. Yeah, I feel like there's just a better way to illustrate having like 
your spidey sense, you know, like knowing that I feel like you could it could just be a look, it could be like a little music sting and we get it. She senses that vampires are near. It feels kind of lazy and Yeah, I I honestly am not really sure what the intent was there cuz I think the thing that's so much fun about the TV show is that, you know, you've got and I guess the film is kind of doing this where they're taking this girl who normally would be a victim and who you would see killed off in most horror movies is kind of turning it around on these monsters and is becoming the thing of the monster's nightmares. And so she's able to go and kick their asses and be the badass. But you don't feel it quite as strongly in this. Just going back to these um, these vampires not really being as much of a threat either... Um, we talked about Paul Rubens a little bit. He's kind of more comic relief, although he, he is he still is kind of menacing. I think he's more menacing than Rutger Hauer's character. But I, I feel like on this watch, it really hit me how I could feel that the ending had been rewritten, this whole scene at the prom, because, you know, Buffy goes to chase after Lothos, basically leaving the entire high school class at the mercy of these vampires. I guess... Pike, you know, is able to kill a couple of them. But then when she comes back later, all of the vampires are just dead. And she didn't kill them. And there's even this exchange between her and Pike where Pike is like, did I do that? And she's like, no. And he says, did you do that? And she said, yes. But we know she didn't. We know that she didn't. So who killed all these vampires? It seems like a pretty big plot hole. There's just a pile of dead vampires at the end of the movie it makes you think that there's some kind of i you would suggest maybe there's a deleted scene where they showed her killing some of these vampires and they took it out for whatever reason because those events unfold almost in real time from the moment that the vampires show up so yeah a lot of uh a lot of murkiness in why exactly we need a vampire slayer if it seems like just regular high school students can do it so to be fair to joss whedon they didn't really execute this that well. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, sadly, two of these cast members have passed away, both Rutger Hauer and Luke Perry. Um, I've always loved Luke Perry as Pike. I think this yeah. is one of my favorite uh, Luke Perry roles, although I never saw uh, 90210. Yeah, I had, I actually have never watched that either, but um, I always loved him in this because he's just so... You know, he's got kind of a dumb friend. He's not really a super smart guy. He's just kind of getting along. But he's pretty, he's really nice. And he, he kind of means well. And, you know, he comes through for her. He even shaves his soul patch for her. Not just any guy will do that. Yeah. Uh, he drives a van, which is sort of a big deal at this time. I feel like a lot of cool guys drove vans. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles drove a van at the, around this time. Uh, I think actually the reporter that they hung out with was driving the van. That was her van. I could have sworn they had their own van. I don't think Maybe so, because they live in a sewer. <laughs> in the cartoon, they definitely had their own van. The Scooby-Doo uh, those, group? Those cool Home Alone guys had a van. Okay, they were <laughs> attempted... Uh, robbers, they were trying to kill a kid, so not that no. cool. Are you just saying people had vans? <laughs> like, there were people Those and Scooby-Doo there were Those Scooby-Doo guys had vans. 
That's the 70s. And Edward Scissorhands, uh, well, that was the villain of the movie that drove a van. Uh, <laughs> You're really not helping your case here. You're making Luke Perry's character sound even worse. And then just going to the supporting cast really quick, I love David Arquette as Benny. I mean, he's kind of yeah. just playing the same doofus he always plays, but uh, he's Pike's friend who like instantly gets turned into a vampire and later floats outside of uh, Pike's window. I that, love yeah. that whole scene. That was a weird touch, though, that vampires can levitate. Vampires can levitate and they have weird elf ears. Yeah, you know, I feel like my ideal vampire design is somewhere between the movie and the show because I don't like the pointy ears, but I kind of feel like it's a little overstated on the show, like with the really high cheekbones and the kind of lion face, the lion face. Yeah, like the really like bulky forehead, like all that prosthetic. Yeah, I, I feel like they're scariest, almost kind of an interview with the vampire, which is like they're pale and their eyes are a little weird. And of yeah. course, they have fangs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the pointed ears, I mean, I guess they're kind of creepy. No, not really. You weren't threatened by those pointy ears? No, more by the pointy teeth. Um, we've also got Steven Root as the uh, pathetically unhit principal yeah. who tells her about how he went to a Doobie Brothers concert and tripped acid. This is Steven Root, the guy in office space yeah with the huge eyes through his glasses he's, he's in a lot of mike judge stuff he he's he voices bill in king of the hill and but he's great in this uh one of my favorite characters is the basketball coach yeah. he's just very sensitive i almost feel like they're trying to kind of parody this like everybody gets a participation award thing that was kind of nascent in the 90s because mm-hmm. he's like folding up their warm-up clothes and he's like Assert your personhood. You are special. And like just yeah. yelling all these kind of like vague positive platitudes at the players. I really like yeah. that character. Did we totally overlook that Hillary Swank plays her shitty friends? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about her friends really quick. Yeah. Her um, friends suck. They're really terrible. And that is another big difference because the whole theme of the TV show, in my opinion, is the reason that Buffy is able to survive and not just get killed off like past Slayers is because her friends empower her and push her up to that next yeah, level. Like but, the Scooby gang is like a big part of what makes her strong. But that's something that she finds in Sunnydale. Like from the school that she came from, she was a popular girl that hung out with the popular kids and mm. had superficial friendships and all that stuff. Like, this is very much the life that she was living before she got there. And so that's why she's so quick to turn on Cordelia when right. she arrives. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Hillary Swank is interesting. She's, um, yeah, they just make her kind of this, like, uber bitch kind yeah. of. Yeah. Like, uh, as an example, um, they're at the mall. Buffy really likes this jacket. She thinks it's super cool. And Hillary Swank, especially, all the friends are joining in, but Hillary Swank especially is saying, oh, no, that jacket's so ugh. Don't get it. Ugh. And so she doesn't. And then next thing she knows, she goes to hang out with them, and Hillary Swank bought that jacket, decided it was great, and probably had talked her out of it because she wanted it instead. Yeah, um, and again, I feel a lot of the Heather's influence here. Like, her whole clique seems like the Heather's just, like, really mean and 
kind of just mean for the sake of being mean. And none of them get a comeuppance. I feel like the movie's kind of afraid to kill off any of these characters because her boyfriend is also awful, the one before Luke yeah, Perry. Yeah, but Hilary Swank is um, knocked in the head at the vampire thing. And By the she's... principal, which is yeah. so weird. So, I mean, she ends up having a pretty terrible time at the prom. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's not the same that you're looking for, but this isn't really a bloody, violent movie at all. I think it's a confused movie. Like, take, for example, when Rutger Hauer bursts into the gymnasium with a katana. Yeah. Like, is that something vampires ever do? And then he's swinging it at... She's she's wielding a just a California flag, and the sword is unable to break through the flagpole. Um, Maybe it's a metal flagpole. That's pretty clearly a wooden flagpole. I don't know. I, I feel like we are uh, uh, pointing to a lot of flaws in this movie, but I did overall really enjoy it, I, I will th- say. I think it's if you go in realizing that it's a pretty silly, light movie, it's not really going to challenge you too much. It's just kind of fun and different and um, having fun with itself, you know? Yeah. But I do think that if they had just tilted the horror comedy balance slightly more towards horror, where... And made her more powerful. Made made her more powerful and made the vampires more powerful. Because Mm -hmm. I'm just not scared of these vampires. I don't... Like, once they catch up to you, they need to, like... Like, what are they even going to do when they catch you? They don't seem to even... A couple times they bite people. Yeah, it's not super clear why there needs to be a chosen one. I mean, Rutger Hauer's character, he can do mind control and all this weird stuff. So you can kind of understand that he is a super villain. That he's just not used that effectively. He's a little too theatrical, too. Like, coming down on the wires with the cape and... I, yeah, I, I wish that uh, it really, do, you really can tell that this was being rewritten while they shot it because there's a lot yeah. of plot holes and a little inconsistent on like how scary this is yeah. supposed to be. Seeing Rutger Hauer in this, how would you feel about him playing Lestat? Oh, that's right. Thank you for reminding me. On the last episode, we talked about how he was uh, Anne Rice's first choice for Lestat. I think that she was probably thinking that around the time of Blade Runner, right? Probably. Like in the early 80s, because he's definitely too old here to be Lestat. Because Lestat is supposed to be beautiful, kind of forever young. Um, You can be a little older and be beautiful, too. Well, I mean, forever young. Like It's like kind of that, um, you know, he's very pristine and... And I think we've already said pretty thoroughly that Tom Cruise is born to play Lestat. So yeah. I feel like it's not really fair. I like Rutger Hauer a lot. I think he's brilliant in Blade Runner. I I don't like him so much in this, mostly because I feel like the script wasn't there. I'm not sure if it was the director, Fran Kazui. I don't know if she was kind of pushing it in this campier direction. And I like campy stuff, like Killer Clowns from Outer Space. But... That was a movie where the clowns are still threatening, even though they're silly. Like, you don't want to run into those clowns in a dark alleyway. I think that might be part of it is just that it's kind of a campy movie, but it's a really soft, campy movie. They really uh, sanded off the edges, sort Mm. of. And again, like, it worked for me when I was a lot younger. I still, you know, I found it scarier. Paul Rubin's character scared me. Rutger Hauer's character kind of, you know made me feel kind of frightened and stuff. So it was effective at that age, but I think, or being a little older now, it's not 
quite as effective. Yeah. Well, I guess we might as well go into buy it, rent it, tape over it since we're uh, given our final judgments here. It didn't quite hold up, but I think for me personally, this is a rent it. Like, I still like it. I still like to see women kick butt and do stuff. I wish that she kicked more butt. I uh, I think the, the menstrual cramp thing was a really odd choice. I wish that... Um, there were just a, a few other things that they had done with this to to raise the stakes. But overall, it's still pretty fun to watch if you like kind of campy vampire supernatural sort of movies. It's got it's got a little bit of a feel of a romantic comedy to it. So it's it's just kind of a, like a light, easy watch. What about you? You know, I'm a little bit on the fence. I feel like nostalgia is definitely pushing me towards rent it but i will admit because i'm a big fan of the tv show um had i not grown up with this movie it would probably be a tape over it and likewise if someone was a fan of the show i'm not sure if i would recommend this to them i mean other than just like a curio of what came before yeah i do think though what saves it are these performances i think it's really fun to see i think christy swanson is actually a great buffy Mm -hmm. yeah Um, she really is good she does i i think she does a good job and um well i wish the vampires were more threatening and i wish that the mythology was just a little more consistent uh i am gonna go rent it i think it's fun and i i really do think it like like you said it's like sort of a nostalgia that colors it for me to make to to push me toward rent it but if this was something that i had never seen before and we had just watched it then i don't think i would have really liked it Hmm. all right sean what are we gonna watch next time um well we brought it up briefly when um we were talking about those cool guys in that van but uh (laughs) it's the christmas season and uh I cannot believe that we have not done Home Alone yet on this show. It so, is kind of crazy that we that is That was such a VHS staple. I think it's time. The original Home Alone. Okay, I gotta admit something really quick, and maybe I could save this for the next episode, but on VHS when I was growing up, I think I rewatched the third Home Alone more than any of the others. Oh my god. <laughs> Do you want me to cut that out so you're not humiliated on tape forever no it's okay on the internet i think it was just one of those ones where i would get fixated on tapes because we had so many vhs tapes we literally had a walk-in closet filled with tapes and pretty much just tapes and christmas decorations when i was growing up and i hated going in there so that we i'd get stuck on whatever was in our entertainment center on display so i wouldn't have to go into the closet and that was one of the ones that happened to be in the entertainment center because i think it was like the newer one of the tapes should we just watch two and three also should we do a triple episode we could do a triple threat because now that you're talking about this i thought you were going to admit that you like two more and no. I was gonna, I, I was gonna have a bone to pick with you because I feel like I rewatched that recently, and I was like, why do people like two? No, but, I think of the three, the first is the best. Oh, no question. But I've probably watched the third one the most. That's so interesting. I feel like we rented the third one once, and we knew going in that it was not Macaulay Culkin, but I remember it being worse than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> regardless. 
Well, we'll think about this more. At the very least, we'll be watching the original Home Alone yeah. next episode. We might watch more than one Home Alone yeah. movie. I did... Now that I'm thinking about it, I did watch a lot of... I, I did tend to watch the shitty sequels of things more than the originals. And I, I think I think my theory is true that it's because those were the newer tapes and they weren't in the weird closet. Oh. Because I watched Home Alone 2 way more than the original. I watched like some of the Land Before Time sequels a lot more often. Although, in defense of that, the original Land Before Time is very scary. Yeah, I mean, we'll have tons of time to talk about it next time, but one thing I will say, and not having seen Home Alone 3 in a long time, one thing that it might have above 2 is, I remember my problem with 2 is it was just a carbon copy of 1, except he's in New York. Yeah. And it has Donald Trump in it, which it, the, is not Eastwell. The third one, the kid is home with the chicken pox. Yeah. It's not even a Christmas movie, is it? Is the third one set at Christmas? There's snow, I think. Well, maybe it is. I haven't seen it in, like, I don't even know how long. I don't want to say how long. Okay. That's how old I am. Well, we, we, we'll, we'll see what happens. We also have to see if we can find these all on VHS, because we just have the first one. But, uh, yeah, next time, at least one Home Alone movie. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at tapeheadspodcast.com. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com or you can rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 